Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this Queen Pen's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, sex, and drug abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Jamika couldn't believe she'd made it. She hadn't seen her son Anthony for six months. Their only contact was on the phone, and every phone call ended the same way, with her son asking when she was coming home. For nearly two years, Jamika had been a fugitive on the run from federal law enforcement. So far, she'd stayed one step ahead by being cautious and avoiding risk, until today. Today, June 23, 1993, was Anthony's sixth grade graduation, and Jamika wasn't going to miss one more of her baby's milestones. Jamika grabbed the dozen yellow roses she'd picked out for Anthony and walked across the quiet parking lot. She'd arrived after the ceremony began on purpose, so she wouldn't have to scan for law enforcement in the crowd. Jamika led herself into the auditorium, The ceremony was almost complete. The graduates were up on stage, singing Heal the World by Michael Jackson for their parents and teachers. Jamika searched the kids on stage and found her Anthony. She was so proud. Until she felt a hand gripping her arm. A voice whispered close to her ear, don't make a scene, you're under arrest. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. Last week, Jamika and her husband, Daff, expanded their marijuana business into a lucrative Los Angeles cocaine ring. But their success ended up getting Daff killed 
when Jamika was just 22. This week, we'll explore how Jamika rebuilt after Daft's death and how she expanded their business exponentially, becoming one of the richest and most powerful drug dealers the United States has ever seen. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Jamika Thompson Hairston and her late husband, Daff, ran a very successful and lucrative cocaine ring in Los Angeles in the early 1980s. Jamika and Daff had a son, Anthony, in 1982 and moved into a mansion in the suburbs. The game, as insiders called the drug business, was only bringing the good life. That is, until Jamika got a phone call on November 23, 1984. Daff had been murdered. Daff's funeral was an enormous event for their entire community. The ceremony was so packed that it was standing room only. And though they were not invited, local police were also in attendance. In addition to officers on the ground, LAPD monitored everything from a helicopter. When the casket was opened for the final viewing at the end of the service, Anthony yelled, Daddy, wake up! Jamika's heart broke. Jamika refers to the time after Daff's death as her hibernation. She was extremely depressed, rarely leaving the house or even getting out of bed. Sonia, a friend Jamika has referred to as her angel, moved in to take care of her and Anthony. Jamika removed herself from everything, unable to face the game or parenting without Daff as her partner. Mike Vahill, a former DEA agent interviewed for the Netflix documentary series Drug Lords, said that after Daff's death, they stopped paying Jamika much attention. Once Daff was killed, we thought, that might be the end of cocaine trafficking for Jamika, simply because drug trafficking is male-dominated. For a woman to be able to make it, she has to be extremely cunning, extremely bright, and extremely ruthless. Jamika was all that and more. She would go on to far exceed the DEA's expectations, but it would take another unexpected tragedy to yank her out of the stupor of depression. One day, screams pulled Jamika out of bed. She dashed downstairs and out onto the back patio. It was Sonia screaming because Anthony was floating face down in the pool. Jamika launched herself into the pool and paddled her son to the edge. She pulled him onto the pool deck and screamed for Sonia to call an ambulance. As Jamika administered CPR, she prayed to God for her son's life. She had just buried her husband a few months ago. She couldn't handle the Lord taking her son as well. Jamika's prayers were answered. Anthony survived. He spent the next week recovering in a children's hospital, and Jamika stayed by his side. They received many visitors, including some of Jamika and Daff's former employees. Jamika was touched by this outpouring of support. After Anthony was discharged, Reggie, one of the dealers that had turned up at the hospital, came to Jamika's house. He reminded Jamika that she couldn't just look after her own family. 
she and Dav had provided a lot of people with a livelihood, and they had all been out of work since Daff's homicide. Jamika was still grappling with her guilt over Daff's murder. She never trusted Daff's business partner, Judah. Judah introduced Daff to the woman he had an affair with, and Judah was the person who told Jamika that Daff was dead. He even had the audacity to ask Jamika to repay a debt he claimed Daff owed him. If Jamika was going to return to the game, she couldn't tolerate working with anyone she didn't trust. She would listen to her gut first and only. The next morning, Jamika went to her favorite Nordstrom. Jamika usually wore the latest from Fila and Jordash, but when the personal shoppers showed her sportswear, she stopped them. She was on the market for a new look. She left Nordstrom with suits in every color. By early 1985, Jamika was back in the game, but she was a whole new player. Jamika called the bail bondsman who went by the name Willie. He was Jamika and Daff's original source for cocaine. With one phone call, Jamika bought out Willie's entire stock. But this time, she didn't store the dope in her garage. She appointed one of her workers to take charge of cutting the pure product and distributing it to dealers in a location far from her home in Encino. Jamika never wanted her money and drugs in the same place, so she made a separate plan for payments. Jamika rented a unit in an apartment building her friend Anita managed and installed a trusted worker there. This would be the drop-off for cash. Jamika had set up her new operation so that she called the shots, but never came in direct contact with the drugs or the cash, at least not until she was withdrawing it from her safety deposit box. Jamika knew that keeping herself physically removed from the day-to-day meant that law enforcement would have a harder time proving her role in the drug ring. But that removal meant that Jamika needed absolute loyalty from her workers. Without Daft to balance her out, Jamika leaned into the traditional drug dealer enforcement method, fear. All her workers knew betrayal was not an option. Jamika's sister-in-law, Tammy Bennett, remembered Jamika's fearsome reputation. In an interview for the Reels documentary series, Gangsters, America's Most Evil, Tammy said, everyone was scared of Jamika in the streets. If she caught you in a lie, there's consequences. She had a short switch. For example, when Anita realized that the unit she had rented Jamika was being used as a money drop, she threatened to call the police. She hadn't agreed to be part of something illegal. Jamika wasted no time setting her straight. Jamika's beatdown must have made an impression because Anita never made trouble again. Once Jamika had things up and running again in LA, she felt a familiar itch. It was time to expand. Daff's death hadn't changed Jamika's addiction to money and power. And now that she was back in the game, she had to feed the beast. Jamika knew just where to find new partners, Las Vegas. Whenever there was a big boxing match in Las Vegas, the city would fill with wealthy drug dealers from all over the country. When Jamika was there among them, she was in her element. These were her people. And each one of them was a conduit to more money. 
Jamika was always the only female operator with real power in these circles. But she knew it served her to keep her hustle under wraps. Instead, she played into what these powerful alpha males expected from a woman. Seduction and submission. After some flirting and drinks, deals usually began with Jamika's Mark asking if she knew anyone who sourced drugs. Jamika would play coy, tell them she had to make a couple of phone calls. In reality, she was calling her workers to move her stock. But she was happy to play the middleman. Better to keep her partner's guards down. Jamika knew how to use her sex appeal to keep marks on the hook. But she always reserved sex for the high rollers, men who could provide lucrative repeat business. Her time in the game had shown her how powerful sex could be to seal or sweeten a deal. As long as she was in control, she really enjoyed it. When the terms were set, Jamika would have 50 kilos of cocaine delivered to Las Vegas within 24 hours. Next, it might be 100 kilos. And just like that, Jamika had expanded her business from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. Consider how much money Jamika was bringing in. One kilo of cocaine contains a thousand grams. In the 80s, a gram of cocaine ran you about $100. So a single kilo would net Jamika $100,000. Jamika would sell up to 100 kilos at a time. That's $10 million. With inflation, that would be almost $24 million today. Of course, Jamika didn't stop her expansion at Vegas. Eventually, Jamika got closer with one of the dealers she met. She called him Detroit. He enticed her to visit his home city. And you guessed it, Detroit. Detroit put Jamika and her son Anthony up in a luxurious hotel suite, showered them with gifts, and took them out to the finest restaurants. There was no discussion of sex or business, which pleased Jamika. The fact that Detroit was taking it slow showed her that he was serious. He played the game with a capital G. After a solid month of feeling each other out, Detroit made his move in characteristic low-key fashion. Over dinner, he casually asked Jamika about her profession. That very night, Jamika got on a plane to Los Angeles. The next morning, she was back in Detroit with two workers and 50 kilos of cocaine. She returned to the same high-end hotel where Detroit had been putting her up. But this time, she made her own reservation for two adjoining rooms. She put the cocaine in one room and invited Detroit into the other. When the terms were met, Jamika opened the door to the adjoining room. Her people brought in the drugs. During the next two months, Jamika made more money than ever before. The transport from LA to Detroit meant she could charge a much higher price for the coke than she could get in Los Angeles or even Las Vegas. She left her son Anthony with her mother Lonnie and traveled with a select group of workers to Detroit every week to deliver the dope. Jamika's smuggling method was simple. It was the mid-1980s and airport security was lax compared to today. Jamika and a partner would wrap kilos of cocaine onto their bodies with plastic wrap or stuff them into extra-large girdles. Then they would put on dowdy outfits like overalls or a roomy moo-moo dress. 
When they walked through the airport, they just looked like fat women. They were never stopped. On the return trip, they would wear the same outfits, except instead of drugs, their girdles would be stuffed with cash. With all the money coming in, Jamika realized she had to transform her business yet again. She was bringing in millions of dollars every week, but if she wanted to use it for substantial purchases like a house or to save it for her son, she needed a legitimate business to launder her money. But Jamika had spent her entire life working outside the confines of legal business. All her contacts were in the game. Could she transform herself again to find success in the world of legal business? Stick around to find out. Now, back to the story. In 1987, less than three years after her husband Daff's death, Jamika Thompson had not only revived their lucrative business distributing cocaine in Los Angeles, but she'd expanded, delivering drugs to Detroit. And she was only 25. But like the notorious B.I.G. said, more money, more problems. The cash was pouring in, but there's a limit to what cash can do. Cash couldn't help Jamika qualify for a mortgage or save an inheritance for her son Anthony. And Jamika knew that she would eventually need an exit strategy from the game. A legitimate business would give her a fallback plan. But Jamika had no idea where to begin. She'd been playing the game her whole life and didn't even know what kind of business she should invest in. Her salvation would arrive at the hair salon. In 1987, Jamika was getting her hair done by James Gibson, a Los Angeles stylist who served all of the famous black women of LA at the time, like actress Cicely Tyson and singers Stephanie Mills and Shirelle. Gibson advised Jamika to get into the hair business. Jamika immediately took to the idea. She knew black women took a lot of pride in their hair, and they were willing to spend a lot of money on a high-quality wig. That was perfect for her purposes. The bigger the transaction, the more efficient her business would be at wiping clean large sums of drug money. So, Jamika set about getting herself into the hair business. Gibson told Jamika that the highest quality hair was sourced from Italy. Her time in the game had taught her to never waste her time on middlemen, so she set out to find her own connection at the source. After a little searching, Jamika found what she was looking for in Palermo, Italy, warehouses stocked with shiny, beautiful, natural hair. Then Jamika did what she did best. She negotiated a great price, handled all the shipping logistics, and got her supply line in place. Of course, before hopping on the plane back to the States, she took a celebratory shopping trip at the Gucci and Fendi stores. But the work wasn't over yet. Jamika knew that if her business was going to take off, she needed to project the right image. So she transformed herself yet again. She signed up for speech classes to enhance her communication skills. She worked with a personal trainer to get into great physical shape. And she set up a corporation, calling her business Hair Distributors, Inc. The slogan was a poem. Hair that glows is hair that flows. When silkiness exaggerates the air, is merely the radiance of beautiful hair. 
For the first time, Jamika was a legitimate businesswoman. In 1988, at just 26 years old, she was president of her own company. With the help of James Gibson, Jamika quickly became known to an entirely new clientele. She was working with the rich and famous, like the singer Shirelle and the family of famed Motown founder Barry Gordy Jr. Jamika was still traveling around Los Angeles to sell her product, but now she was making sales to a different echelon of clients. She was entering the secure estates of the wealthy, confidently handing her ID to an off-duty police officer working security. It was a new way of life, and Jamika was digging it. She wrote in her memoir, Right then, I realized I could be the star in any game I played. In 1988, Jamika was working at her highest level yet. She was living large in both halves of her double life. During the day, she was a respected, successful businesswoman, president of Hair Distributors, Inc. When she left the office, she became the queenpin of the Los Angeles drug trade. Jamika would even switch between roles when she was traveling. She attended the Bronner Brothers International Hair Show in Atlanta, rounding up great exposure for both her businesses as she partied her way through the whole weekend. Jamika and Hair Distributors, Inc. were big hits at the hair show. Jamika was pleased to find that her talents for warming people up and brokering deals, honed by her years playing the game, were just as useful in her legitimate business. Jamika also met two new men who could advance her game. She called one Atlanta and one basketball. Jamika knew it was going to be tricky to have two men working with her in Atlanta. If they learned about each other and got jealous, it would be bad for business. But Jamika went for it. Her success thus far fueled her confidence. She figured she could handle the risk. But Jamika should have been thinking about another kind of risk. As her business expanded, she landed right back on the radar of the DEA. Criminal investigator John Brown recalled that Jamika had an almost legendary status. Quote, she had a reputation as someone who could put together a major drug deal, a half a million to a million dollars, and she could do it repeatedly. The Los Angeles Police Department was also still investigating Jamika for drug distribution. Jackie Hickey, a gang task force officer with the LAPD, joined forces with the DEA in around 1992. Hickey was hell-bent on bringing Jamika down because she believed that Jamika was providing the majority of the crack and cocaine poisoning the city of Los Angeles. In the early 90s, addiction to crack would reach epidemic proportions in LA. One symptom of that epidemic was an incredible spike in violence. The combination of crazed addicts and brutal drug dealers had the entire city on edge. The Los Angeles Police Department was overwhelmed. In 1992, more than 2,500 people were murdered in Los Angeles. Not all the murders were directly drug-related, but police resources were stretched so thin, serial killers were able to murder with near impunity. Also in 1992, the same year that murders were reaching a peak in LA, the acquittal of four Los Angeles police officers who had beaten Rodney King led to the infamous LA riots. 
2,000 National Guardsmen had to be called in to restore order to the city. And it wasn't just Los Angeles that was falling into chaos. In the late 80s and early 90s, the entire nation was in the grip of crack. A 1990s Senate panel found that abuse of cocaine was disturbingly widespread, and treatment was not very effective. Pressure to stop the flow of crack and cocaine was immense. But although local and federal law enforcement learned a lot about Jamaica through informants and undercover agents, they didn't have a first-hand witness. Jamaica was very careful about who saw her handling drugs or money. It was always her own people, or the men she made deals with directly, who had just as much to lose as she did, never anyone else. Jamaica's workers and associates were tightly controlled with a potent mix of loyalty and fear. She was known for taking care of those who did right by her, and, as the rumors suggested, for killing those who did not. Greg Underwood, former special agent with the DEA, says he worked with an informant that was terrified of Jamaica. The informant felt that, quote, Jamaica would kill me just as quickly as she would spray raid to kill a roach. Mike Vahill, another former DEA agent, speculates that Jamaica was capable of ordering murders at will. But law enforcement had their own leverage. To combat the expansion of drug trafficking, federal sentencing laws were extremely rigorous. Starting in 1986, any involvement with the drug business mandated a minimum 10-year sentence. For someone like Jamaica, it could be much more, even life in prison. The only way to avoid hard time? Snitch on other players. The DEA expected those statutes to make it easier to get Jamaica's workers to flip on her. But they underestimated the power Jamaica held over her people. In 1991, Jamaica arranged to sell 30 kilos of cocaine to a distributor in Las Vegas. She set up an LA local named Dino to make the delivery. Dino decided to make his arrival a showstopper. He rented a fully outfitted limo and driver to bring him and the stash to Sin City. The limo had it all. A fully stocked minibar, a great sound system, and even a disco ball. Dino was enjoying himself in the back seat. But as they approached Vegas, traffic got heavy. Dino was impatient. He rolled down his window in the back. He pulled out his gun and pointed it at the car next to them, cursing. The limo was able to pull ahead, but not 30 minutes later, it was pulled over by the highway patrol and Jamaica's 30 kilos were discovered. The DEA and LAPD felt sure that they'd finally apprehended someone who would inform on Jamaica. Dino was a convicted felon facing another 20 to 30 years in prison, but he took the time rather than flip on his queen pin. So law enforcement kept biding their time. They predicted that Jamaica's appetite for money and power would only continue to expand. And the farther her reach, the more people she made deals with, the more likely she would put her trust in the wrong person. For Jamaica, that wrong person wouldn't look wrong at all. In fact, they would look very, very right. 
In 1988, Jamaica's friend James Gibson, the LA hairstylist who had helped get Hair Distribution Inc. off the ground, invited her to a music studio to meet his friend, who he called the next Marvin Gaye. A very attractive man was in front of the mic. His name was Percy Bratton, but he introduced himself as Cheese. Jamika stayed in the studio all night, listening to him perform. Afterwards, they went out for fried chicken and waffles. Jamika was smitten. Although Cheese worked often in Los Angeles, he also spent a lot of time in his home state of Illinois. Seeing a new market on the horizon, Jamika quickly vetted and bedded Cheese so they could go into business together. Over the next two years, Cheese became one of Jamika's best customers and boyfriends, buying cocaine pounds at a time and lavishing her with gifts whenever he was in Los Angeles. But Jamika had finally gone one market too far. In 1991, one of Cheese's distributors was arrested in Los Angeles with thousands of dollars in cash. The distributor quickly flipped on Cheese, who was arrested in Illinois and charged with intent to distribute cocaine. Facing the possibility of 10 years or more in prison, Cheese decided to give up Jamaica. The feds finally had a witness willing to turn informant, but they didn't have the queen pin. In April 1991, Jamaica was indicted on federal drug conspiracy and money laundering charges. Federal agents showed up to Hair Distributors, Inc., but Jamika wasn't there. She was lucky enough to be working off-site, and one of her loyal workers called to alert her the FBI and DEA were looking for her. Jamika immediately moved Anthony in with her mother, Lonnie. Once she was able to put together a series of false identities, she went on the run. Her work in the game meant she had contacts all over the country, and plenty of them were happy to put her up. Jamika wrote in her memoir that the men she stayed with during this time were like drawers in a desk. I could open and close them whenever I wanted to. I was in control. The feds began working with U.S. Marshals to try and track Jamika. But it was slow going. Jamika's millions in drug money meant she could keep running forever. But she couldn't stay away from Los Angeles for too long and law enforcement was about to get wise. In 1992, frustrated DEA agent Greg Underwood came to LA to do some investigating himself. He didn't have a lot to go on, but he did know where the offices of Hair Distributors, Inc. were located. He obtained a search warrant and did a sweep, but there was no evidence of illegal activity. A local police sergeant pointed out a framed certificate from Cowan Elementary, a local elementary school hanging on the wall near Jamika's desk. It was an award for Anthony. Underwood's next move was to call Cowan Elementary. He learned the commencement was in June and Anthony would be graduating from sixth grade. It felt like a long shot, but Underwood was so fixated on the queen pin he was ready to act on a hunch. Up next, the DEA orchestrates an ambitious and complex sting at an elementary school graduation. Now, back to the story. 
Jamika Thompson had been running from law enforcement ever since a federal indictment was filed against her in April 1991. She had drug and romantic connections across the country that made it easy to keep moving and changing her identity to evade authorities. She spent time in Birmingham, Miami, Chicago, Detroit, Atlanta. Almost two years went by this way. She spent her 30th and 31st birthdays on the run. With nothing else to go on, DEA agent Greg Underwood looked into Jamika's son, Anthony, who had been living with Jamika's mother, Lonnie, while she was on the lam. When Underwood contacted Anthony's school in June of 1993, he learned that Anthony was about to graduate from sixth grade. Underwood had a hunch that Jamika would want to see her son in a cap and gown. Underwood partnered with the U.S. Marshal Service to place several undercover deputies at the graduation. Some were dressed as janitors. Some were dressed as parents and teachers. They all knew who their target was. When the ceremony got underway and Jamika hadn't shown up, Underwood was probably a little disappointed. He'd burned through a lot of resources on a hunch that looked like it wasn't going to pan out. The ceremony was at its tail end when the doors to the auditorium creaked open for a latecomer, a finely dressed black woman carrying a bouquet. She wore dark-tinted Chanel sunglasses in the dimly lit auditorium. The undercover deputies tensed. It was her. As soon as Jamika sat down, the two nearest deputies approached her on either side, each grabbing one of her arms. One of them whispered in her ear that she was under arrest, but she shouldn't make a scene. It was at that moment that Anthony, still on stage, spotted his mother. Joy blossomed on his face. He shouted for her and jumped off stage to run to her. Jamika felt like her insides were being torn up. She wanted nothing more than to hug her son, but she was sick at the thought that he was about to witness her arrest. Another thought flashed across Jamika's mind. Her purse contained multiple fake IDs and credit cards linked to her aliases. This evidence could create an entire new case against her. Impulsively, she threw the purse to a friend. Although the undercover agents wanted that purse and the evidence inside it, her friend wouldn't give it up, and the agents were too wary of causing a scene to press the matter. Jamika's quick thinking and loyal friends saved her again. Anthony slowed as he got closer to his mother. He could tell something wasn't right. Jamika was crushed, but she swallowed her emotion and asked one of the deputies holding her if she could hug her son. The deputy released her. Jamika had a few glorious seconds to embrace her boy. She didn't ever want to let him go, but she had to. As she was led to the waiting patrol car, Jamika looked back and saw her son's face full of tears. The pit in her stomach could have swallowed her whole. Jamika said that being arrested in front of her son was, quote, the worst feeling that any mother can feel. Jamika knew Anthony was experiencing the same emotion she had felt when her family was evicted all those years ago. Embarrassment, shame, isolation, Loneliness, the same public humiliation. 
Everything had changed for Jamika again. For the second time in her life, she felt she was living in a nightmare that she had never imagined. She said, I thought I had everything under control. But when they put those handcuffs on me, I was in their world. After her arrest, Jamika was extradited back to Illinois. She was kept in a small county jail outside St. Louis while she waited for her trial. The water that came out of the faucet in her cell was so filthy that Jamika only drank the off-brand Kool-Aid the jail provided. The case against Jamika rested on testimony from Cheese and his family members who worked in the drug trade. Jamika felt confident going into trial. Cheese was a drug user himself, and his family's conflict of interest should make their testimony easy to discredit. But the state of Illinois had a secret trump card. Jamika's jaw dropped open when Cassandra, a secretary from Hair Distributors, Inc., walked into the courtroom. She testified that Jamika had asked her to transport drugs to Cheese in Illinois. Jamika felt an acute sense of betrayal. Cheese had chosen to testify against her, but in return, he was retaining his freedom. Cassandra wasn't facing years in prison. She was just resentful that Jamika tried to involve her in illegal activities. It was the very beginning of a long journey Jamika was about to embark on, the journey toward understanding the destruction she had sown by distributing drugs. Jamika was found guilty of conspiracy to distribute cocaine and money laundering. She was facing the possibility of 25 years to life in prison, but she would have to wait six months in that horrible county jail for sentencing. The district attorney offered Jamika a deal similar to Cheese's. She could decrease her sentence if she provided incriminating evidence against other players in the game. Jamika refused. The way she saw it, all her choices were her own, and no one else should have to face consequences for her actions. For the first time since her family was evicted all those years ago, Jamika was not in control of her own life. She had dedicated her life's work to building and maintaining that control, but ironically, it was that work that stripped the control from her. Jamika's conviction also meant that she was finally faced with the consequences the game had on her community. She felt she had done right by her workers, but she had never considered the damage all the drugs were doing to her city. Now that she saw it, the guilt was almost too heavy to bear. While Jamika waited for her sentence, the stress and poor diet at the jail made her ill. After suffering through an exhausting pre-sentencing interview, Jamika was desperate for relief. She went to the jail's chapel for the first time, seeking solace. Inside, a preacher was working with a room of inmates. When he asked the group if anyone wanted to receive the Holy Spirit, Jamika volunteered. The preacher put his hand on Jamika's forehead, spreading oil across it. The moment his fingers touched her head, Jamika began speaking in a language she'd never heard before and didn't understand. Jamika was overwhelmed by a gush of love and jubilation. She could feel God working inside her. When the preacher asked if anyone wished to be baptized, Jamika came forward to the silver baptismal font. Jamika wrote in her memoir, 
When I came out of the water, I began to speak in my new language, but this time I knew exactly what I was saying. She returned to her cell, a baby in Christ. Jamika immediately knelt in front of her bunk and began to pray. She recounted later, I remember getting on my bunk and putting the cover over my head, and I began to confess every sin for hours. I felt so pure and so clean and so refreshed and so new. All night, Jamika remained on her knees, coming clean. She confessed sins she'd forgotten about, sins she had never spoken aloud to another human being. Even though she'd been up all night, when the sun came up, she felt relaxed and tranquil. She was forgiven. While she waited for her sentence, Jamika read the Bible, twice. She participated in Bible study in the chapel and attended every service she could. She started ministering to the other inmates and even the guards in the jail. And Jamika continued working on herself. She wrote, I continued to see my past for what it was. There was much pride, shame, and pain, but God broke it all down and replaced it with love joy, and kindness. When it came time for Jamika to be sentenced, six months after she was convicted, she felt like a new woman. But the DA didn't hold back. In his statement, he said Jamika was, quote, a menace to society. Jamika had ruined families and destroyed lives. But then, Jamika received a sentence of 15 years, on the low end of what she expected. Jamika had been forced to relinquish the control that had been her sole fixation for so many years. But when she did, God really came through for her. Jamika continued to expand her faith during her time in prison. She continued to minister to inmates, and she made a difference in many lives. Jamika even ministered to some famous convicts including Griselda Blanco, who listeners may remember as another queen pin and cocaine mogul. Jamika helped an inmate regain her faith after receiving a terminal cancer diagnosis. She even felt that sometimes God was speaking to her. She correctly predicted the outcomes of a few of her charges' cases, but only when they were favorable. Jamika did her best to continue mothering her son from prison. Every single day she could, Jamika got on the phone so she could speak to her son before he went to school in the morning. Once a month, Anthony would come to the prison and visit. As Anthony got older, his visits became less frequent. Jamika missed seeing her boy, but she knew she had to give him the freedom to make his own choices. And Anthony sure did his mother proud. In 2003, when Anthony was 19, there was a skateboarding showcase on the TV in the prison lounge. Jamika suddenly looked up when she heard the announcer say, next up on the Vancouver Slam City Jam, pro skateboarder Anthony Mosley. Jamika was astonished. And then she saw a face on the screen that looked just like hers. That professional skateboarder was her son. By Jamika's own account, she was hollering and screaming, that's my son. Jamika had no doubt God was continuing to move in her life. 
After serving 13 years, she was released in 2005. Soon after her release, Jamika founded Second Chance Evangelical Ministries, an organization dedicated to serving the incarcerated. She continues to tell her story in all kinds of forums, from pulpits, in interviews, and in letters to incarcerated individuals. Her message often boils down to this, quote, you are looking at a miracle. I should be dead, but I'm alive for a reason, to tell you that there is hope. My hope came through Jesus. He is alive, I am redeemed. Jamika had survived the game that killed her first love. During a prison sentence that could have broken her down, Jamika chose to rise up. And now she's dedicated the time she has left to helping others rise with her. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. For more information on Jamika Thompson Hairston, among the many sources we used, we found the memoir Queen Pin, written by Jamika Thompson Hairston and David Ritz, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Andy Waits. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Kingpins was written by Hannah McIntosh and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.